Welcome to ASHTA Resource Q&A. We're taking time to discuss construction materials testing and inspection with people in the know. From exploring testing problems and solutions to laboratory best practices and quality management, we're covering topics important to you. Now, here's our host, Brian Johnson. Today on the podcast, we're going to try something a little different. Uh, our guest host today is Oak Metcalf from the Montana DOT. Welcome to the podcast, Oak. Well, thanks, Brian. Uh, happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. With Oak, we have our very own John Molusky. He's the manager of the Proficiency Sample Program. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate the opportunity to come back and uh, get an opportunity to chat with Oak. Yeah, you're going to be a guest uh, a lot because we get more questions about proficiency samples than probably any other topics in the accreditation program. So it makes for good content on the podcast. Now, the reason why I brought Oak here is because he's had some questions about proficiency samples from time to time. And I thought instead of me getting in the way, I am giving him the opportunity to ask the questions directly to John and John will try to answer it. And uh, I may interject here or there, but otherwise we're just going to let Oak run with it. So Oak, the floor is yours. Well, thanks, Brian. And uh, thanks to John for uh, taking these questions and I'll just give you all a little bit of uh, background about some of the reasons why I was wanting to ask these questions and give resource a little bit of a plug here. As most people probably know, Department of Transportation labs are required to be accredited, and the Astral Resource Program is the premier program for that. But one of the other things that you can take advantage of as a DOT is using the Proficiency Sample Program for your non-central laboratories to help them get better, help them uh, with their proficiency. And so that's something that we're exploring outside of our central laboratory. So we have a couple of regional laboratories that are we're bringing on board with this program. And so if we get new or when we get new people involved in the program, there are always questions. Plus, it's always good to uh, review some of the basics uh, for those that have been doing it for a while. And, you know, every now and again, people get complacent. And so you want to want to avoid complacency. So this just sounded like a really good idea to get some of that stuff taken care of. So I will jump right in with one of the most basic questions, I guess, and that is, where do the samples come from? We get construction materials of all shapes and sizes, and that's a, that's a lot of material to uh, handle and wrangle. So where do you get all that stuff from? Well, it, it kind of depends on what the proficiency sample is that we're specifically talking about. The aggregate and soils generally come from the mid-Atlantic region, <clears throat> you know, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Virginia, um, as far west as Ohio. They obviously have to be fairly close to us just because of, you know, getting the materials and products into our building. Obviously, there's a, a transportation and shipping cost that comes with that. So we want to we want to try to vary the material, but typically they, they come from around the uh, mid-Atlantic region. Now, when we're talking about things like liquid asphalts, we have the capability to, to basically get those from anywhere in North America. We've had facilities from Canada provide the material. We've had uh, refineries and terminals in California, uh, Florida. So, so basically the liquid asphalt can kind of come from anywhere in North America. We don't have an issue getting that material, uh, but you know, when you need to order 200 tons of stone for a coarse aggregate sample, you really don't want to 
pay to have that shipped all the way across the country. And then we would have to pass some of that, that cost on to the customers. So we really want to try to not do that. Um, so that's you know, kind of basically it. All right. Thanks. And I'll just, I'll throw out another plug here for the resource folks. Uh, obviously there are 50 Department of Transportation labs, but on top of that, there are what, over a thousand other private labs that participate in the proficiency sample program. So this material isn't just for the 50 states. This is for numerous, numerous, numerous other labs. So it's quite the uh, operation. I've seen some of the videos of the sample preparation and it's quite the operation. Moving on from where do the samples come from, uh, anybody that's participated in the proficiency sample program knows that there are dual samples or you get an A and a B sample. And that's a question that even I forget sometimes. So when you get the A sample and the B sample, are they the same? I'm going to kind of repeat my answer here uh, to the first question. And the answer is it's kind of sample specific too. <laughs> you know, so when we have a, a liquid asphalt come in from whatever supplier, typically it's from the same lot, the same tank. We, you know, we try to do our best to make sure it's homogenous. So for the most part, the liquid asphalt samples are identical. Now we will do things like vary the supplier, but keep the performance or PG grade the same. So that's one thing that has been done in the past to try to change that sample type a little bit. But when you're talking about the other samples, the soils and the aggregates, they are very, very similar. They're not 100% identical, but they are usually pretty close. So say, for example, we're sending our soil classification sample. We basically have a, a blended product that is a clay and some sort of a, a sand whether it's a manufactured uh, limestone, some sort of crushed material, or even a natural sand, that the ratio of sand to clay uh, is typically close. So for soil classification, you know, our sample A, as you mentioned, oak, it might be 50-50. We might just decide to do 50-50 blend to make it easy on us. And then we'll go and say, okay, well, sample B, instead of doing 50-50, clay to soil, we'll do something like 45 to 55, just to slightly change the properties a little bit. We can even do some other things like add you know, roughly 2 to 5% bentonite to try to tweak things like liquid limit values. But for the most part, they're fairly close. And that's actually part of the analysis and the design of the samples. The scatter plots that we use need to have a slight bit of variability. Now, most of the time, just natural testing bias or testing variability is enough to to keep the uh, the scatter plot the way we want but that little bit of change that we can kind of engineer into it also helps out with that part of the reason why i asked that question about are the samples the same is you know how do you determine the within lab repeatability but i'm getting a little bit of ahead of myself but that's the reason why i asked that question so that segues very nicely into the next question that i have is can you explain the results report um, as far as when somebody submits their test results, then they those test results are evaluated and then the ratings are assigned. You get the report and then there's all these numbers on there. I think the report does a fairly good job of identifying what is what. There's a, there's a very nice legend there that says what things are and how things are calculated. But if you could just go through some of that stuff like you know, what is the 1S value? What is what is a Z score? 
how do you determine within lab repeatability? Sure, no problem, Oak. The one thing is, and this is a little bit of a teaser kind of coming down the road here, uh, we have been working with a, an IT development group to uh, make some changes to the Ashta resource website. And I'm sure all of you will see that release coming out hopefully sometime soon. I'm not going to really give a date because we're not 100% sure yet, but we are going to make some changes and some enhancements to the PSP portion of the rating sheets. We're kind of looking at trimming down the actual report sheet to simply show your average and the rating to make it a little bit easier and easier on the eye, I guess I should say. You know, but we're also still going to keep the current functionality that we have so you can look at all of that additional information. So kind of a little bit of a teaser coming out, hopefully within the, the next year or so. But to go back to your question, when we're looking at the rating sheets, you know, we have a bunch of uh, essentially cells and the labels are at the header, uh, you know, such as total labs, your lab data, average standard, standard deviation, Z-score and rating. So the total labs is obviously the number of laboratories who participated in the program for that specific test parameter. You know, we have a few programs that uh, have participation in the high teens to several thousand. We're, we're up over 2,000 with some of the enrollments. So you'll see that kind of wide range of, of laboratories performing the tests. The next column is your laboratory data. So that's basically what you submitted with your data sheet. Then we have the average value. And that average is what has been term determined as the consensus value from the participants. So that's kind of the assigned value, or if you want to say the true or real number, you know, once you have that many participants, you know, I'm looking at the, looking at a data sheet right now to make sure I don't miss anything. And, and we've got the 1,789 labs in the sheet that I'm looking at. So that average value, you get, you get 1,789 participants, you got to be pretty sure that's the right value. That average is quote unquote it. The one S is a standard deviation. So that is what one standard deviation would be statistically speaking of the distribution of that data around the average. Then the Z score is your laboratory's number of standard deviations that you fell away from the grand average. The Z-score is simply calculated as the difference between your data that you entered compared to that average, and then we divide it by the standard deviation. And there's a plus or usually a, a plus or minus on it or, or nothing in a minus sign. And that just simply indicates whether you were above or below the mean as, it, as your data was submitted. And then the ratings, that's you know, basically the target that everybody looks for. You know, we have a rating system that's five through zero, five being the highest score and the best score, zero being the worst or the lowest. And a rating of five is plus or minus one standard deviations about that average value. So we kind of give you a little bit of room there with the five rating. And then for every one half standard deviation you're away from the mean, then you'll, your rating value will decrease by one. So for example, if your Z-score is 1.01, you would get a 4. If it's 1.51, you would get a 3. And basically work your way down. So for every deviation, every half deviation you're away further than that first one, your rating would drop by one rating point. So then we have the, the within lab repeatability. Specifically, kind of what, what are you looking to get out of that repeatability? Are you, you want to determine how it is 
or how it's determined or what its use is or kind of a little bit of everything. Maybe let me take a step back and say, I look at the within lab repeatability as a, as a, uh, a measure of the consistency of that laboratory's operation. You know, the, the operator is, is doing the, the test the same way on the same material, so they should get a similar result. So if the sample isn't the same, then, then how does that work? So that's, that's kind of where that question comes from. Yeah, and, and you know, basically with, with your two kind of questions or two little points, you, you nailed it. Um, I mean, that's that's exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about consistency and that question that you said about, well, how do we determine that if the samples are slightly different? Well, that that's taken into account when we actually look at our statistical analysis package. What we do is we assign that rating and it's it's based off the deviation of your, what would be your two data points that you submit. So, uh, you know, your sample A and your sample B compared to the deviation of the average values. So we basically get the difference of your values and we get the difference of the grand average values for the A and B sample. And we compare those differences. There's some geometry involved in and in a little bit of a uh, little bit of algebra, but it's really not that uh, that complicated. But what we end up doing is we get an estimate of repeatability, and that estimate is the deviation that your data as a pair falls away from the pair of the averages. If that makes makes some sense, it's it's tricky to explain, but it's it's just simply a measure of the summation of the deviations. Uh, of, of your data compared to the deviations between the average values is, is really all it is. So if you were one standard deviation above on sample A and one standard deviation below, your total summation would be two deviations away. But then you would obviously have to look at how that compares to the grand average. Like I said, it's trickier to talk about than it is to show. We know that uh, we have some capability with some other other webinars and other features and uh, our technical exchange, and and we try to uh, to do a little bit better with an explanation in that situation. It's kind of tough in a podcast to to uh, get that out, but but in the, essentially, it's the summation of that total deviation. It isn't percentage based. It it's just the total measure of the deviation compared to the deviation between the samples. Now, we quote unquote say the samples aren't identical, but they are not so drastically different that we would see an issue. We wanna have the samples have not have so much of a bias because they're different material. When, when you look at those samples and you look at the data, the standard deviation should be very close. The coefficient of variation value should be very close. The averages should be very close. And like I said, the, those liquid asphalt samples that we send out, if you look at asphalt-specific gravity, for example, we do not touch that material when it comes into the building other than taking it from 55-gallon drums and putting it into the quart cans that we send out for the labs to test. And it never comes out identical. It's close, but it's never identical, and that is essentially just testing variability. You know, so no matter what, there's some there. And, and, and you know, you'll never overcome that just because of the nature of, of – uh, those materials that we test. Thanks, John. And part of the reason why I asked this question, the example that you just came up with was was great because our central laboratory had some problems a couple of years ago with that exact value that you were talking about, asphalt specific gravity. And you know, thank you for explaining all of those numbers on that report because that was one of the things that I was using to help the lab in their subsequent testing. You know, and in this, of course 
uh, only really applies to a laboratory that has a history and uh, or not necessarily a history, but if you're understanding the results reports from previous samples, you can take a look at those values to get an idea of how you're performing. So like, for instance, the specific gravity for asphalt, I mean, the standard deviation on that sample is really, really, really small, like in the thousands or ten thousands, maybe ten thousands is too too small. But if you understand how that report works and you look at the previous values for that, you can say, all right, well, you know, the standard deviation of this test is very, very tight historically. So if I have a value between my two samples that is in the tens or the hundreds, that's a sign that well, maybe something is wrong. It's, it's you can't really say that that is going to affect the sample that you are testing because obviously that's based on different material, but it's just one of those tools that you can use as you're trying to troubleshoot your testing by looking at previous results and you know what are the historic standard deviations on a sample. So if you understand the report, I think there's a lot of information that you can get that just helps you get better in your in your laboratory and helps you hone in on your repeatability. That's where I was going. Um, I'll also give another plug here. Part of the reason why I'm really happy to have this opportunity to talk to John here is many, many moons ago, it seems like an eternity ago, but John was going to come to the state of Montana and give us a presentation. As I mentioned at the top of this discussion, you know, we're adding some some of our labs to the PSP program that had never dealt with this before. And John was gracious enough to volunteer to come out here to the Treasure State and give us a presentation. And then almost as if the universe said, no, John, we're not letting you come to Montana. COVID happened and then nobody could travel. So I appreciate the opportunity to uh, ask these questions. So moving from the rating sheet and what repeatability is, you mentioned there were some of these uh, visual cues and charts and graphs. If you're familiar with the PSP program online, there are things called the Yowden diagram and the performance charts. And obviously those are visual representations, but if you could give us maybe just a quick summation of uh, you know, what those charts and graphs are, that would be helpful as well. Uh, the scatter plot is, or the Uden diagram is basically the visual representation of the full data set. If you were to open it up and you know, take a look at it, basically it looks like a kind of like a shotgun blast. You know, uh, you have your your data, your paired data. The x-axis in the plot is your odd sample data, and the y-axis would be your even sample data. We conduct our analysis. We have the capability to, I guess, massage the plot to make it look good and look pretty, uh, to try to set the um, set the increments uh, for the plot to give the best representation possible of the data. Now, a lot of times it's not possible to include every single data point because some are pretty far out there. And like I said, we want to get a good, clear picture of the ellipse you know so that's that's another component of the Uden plot is the ellipse and the ellipse on that chart is at three standard deviations so basically if your laboratory's data points are inside that ellipse more than likely you're you're doing okay now if you're right on the edge of that ellipse you're you're probably flirting with a one or a zero you know, so it's kind of a little bit deceiving that, oh, well, I was inside the ellipse, my data is perfect. Well, that's not necessarily the case because it's a three standard deviation ellipse. So, and I mentioned that anything outside of three standard deviations would be a, a zero or a poor rating. 
the diagonal line that goes directly through the average value, that's the measure of the repeatability. So that's that's where your repeatability value would be on the average. And the one thing that you, you kind of notice about that, if you have, you know, you're, you're thinking about, uh, you know, your typical graph and your four quadrants inside of a graph, you know, going, uh, I guess it would be counterclockwise, correct? One, two is upper left, bottom so, yeah. left is three, and four is lower right. Anywhere along that, that diagonal line, if you write on that diagonal line, you could be uh, you know, you'd have essentially a five for your within lab repeatability. But if you're way out in quadrant one or way out in quadrant three, you're probably way outside the ellipse value that, you know, you that three standard deviation ellipse. So that's kind of a, a, a visual there to see that's like, you know, you could look at that and basically see where your repeatability is by how close you are to that 45 degree line. You know, there's, there's just so much to talk about. It's, it's <laughs> I could, I could keep going on. I, I apologize, but, uh, uh, like I said, those are the major components, your your axes, your 45-degree line, and your ellipse. One of the kind of little little neat features about the shape of the ellipse is the longer and skinnier that ellipse is, the more systematic error is found within that test method. So if you're looking at something like asphalt-specific gravity, it's, it's a pretty good shape. It, it kind of looks like a... Uh, a football or even more like a rugby style ball. And that's what we want to see. We want to see this, you know, nice ellipse with it. You know, I guess I want to say that the ratio of the length to the thickness of the ellipse should be essentially like two to one or three to one. That's kind of like a, a target for a good, a good test method. But if you see that ellipse starting to really, really, really stretch out, then there's some systematic variability in that test method that we can try to tackle with, you know, making something more clear. If that ellipse starts to kind of get a little chunky and turn into more of a circle, really either two things are kind of happening. Either the samples are bad, <laughs> which hopefully that's not the case because that's not what I want to hear. Um, or the other thing is your test method is starting to get that good that there's no more systematic error. So then the only variability you are seeing is any sample deviation. So it's kind of a, a, a tricky little bit of a back and forth thing. Well, is the test method that good or are the samples that bad? And we kind of have to battle back and forth and, and really look at the test method and, and see, is there a way that we could improve the samples? But that's just kind of a, a, another aside there, uh, that ellipse shape is kind of important. I think that, that probably wraps it up with the uh, union plot. And then the performance chart is available to every one of the, the laboratories who submit data for each test parameter. Um, it tracks data for the previous 10 rounds, the current round and, and nine preceding rounds for your, for your laboratory. The performance chart is essentially a, a visual representation of that within lab value. So if you were to look at that, you would see the sample rounds across the bottom and in the x-axis. And then on the y-axis, um, it's the z-score. So the z-score from the data for each one of those pairs of samples. Uh, you know, you'll have your two samples. There's, there'll be a circle that represents the odd sample and a square that represents the even sample. And the distance that those values are apart from each other, those two points are, that's kind of a, an eyeball measurement of your within lab repeatability. So if, if that circle and that square in that graph are really close to each other for that sample, then you had a really good within repeatability. 
if they're spread apart pretty far, then you had a poor within lab repeatability. And as you look at that chart going from left to right for each sample round, you want to see those two values stay right around that average, that z-score of zero. That's probably kind of the best result that you would hope for. The one really, really nice feature about the performance charts and, and what you were mentioning about looking at it over time is that it's, it's very, very easy to isolate potential issues or where things started. Uh, if there was any sort of problem, you can see drift in your data. And it's pretty apparent when, when you got something going on, if you look at those performance charts and you have a few uh, rounds with bad ratings, it's, it's pretty easy to see. And, and hopefully you have the capability to identify what started that trend or that bias. That's come in handy for us actually kind of recently as we were do, looking into uh, a low rating. When you look at the performance charts, you could, you could see that we had a little bit of a bias where you know all of the results were on the low side. So that actually spurred us into figuring out what was wrong with that particular test method. So as a young materials engineer, before I was in a technical director position, I was looking at those things and it's like, what, what is all of this stuff? And, and as I, you know, learned what they were for and how their uses can help you with your quality management, that it really becomes prevalent and it's a, it's a very good tool. And I, sometimes I think people just don't take advantage of that stuff when they're, when they're looking at corrective actions and, and root cause analysis. So thank you for that, John. I appreciate that. So when you get a low rating, we need to figure out why we got that low rating. You know, that's part of our uh, laboratory accreditation. Everybody that is accredited by Ashto Resource, that's one of the three legs of the accreditation is the proficiency sample program. And if you get uh, low ratings, you have to address that low rating, figure out why it is you got that low rating and then what it is that you're going to do to correct that low rating. However, there are some times that you can't figure out why it is that you got the low rating. And I know in our lab, we've had low ratings over the years and you go back and you check all the calibrations of your equipment and you check all of the maintenance of your equipment and you rerun the sample and everything seems to be right, but you just can't put your finger on what it is that put you away from the grand average. Do you, do you have any suggestions on uh, what a lab could do in that situation? Obviously, there are just some times when you just can't figure it out and you do your best to follow the directions the next time. But I, I just wondered if you had any comments or thoughts on on that situation. You know, Oak, it's definitely a tricky situation when, when that happens. And we experience that ourselves. You know, you're aware, and, and I think a lot of our, our participants are becoming more aware of our ISO accreditation. And it requires us to perform homogeneity testing. And, you know, we have to analyze the samples before we ship them out using analysis of variance and then check them for stability with the T-test. And, and we run in that same situation that, that you guys do. Well, sometimes they fail. And it's like, how in the heck did they fail? You know, you, when you're trying to go through the root cause analysis, you just need to be diligent. There are times where you don't want to really dig for that needle in the haystack because God knows how small that needle is. And you got to take a step back and say to yourself, well, is there really an issue or is that potentially just the statistics? And, you know, this is a discussion that we've had with other groups and some of our colleagues in, in stats. And, you know, the way that our analysis works is that one out of every 20 times you could potentially have a failure and you may not have any reason or know why. That's not an excuse by any means to not do a corrective action or that may not necessarily be the corrective action. But 
when you run into situations like that, you just need to be diligent and make sure that the data was entered correctly, the technician performed the test correctly, the equipment was within calibration. There are some times where you just can't explain what happened. And we run into that situation in our program, and, and we definitely have empathy when, when it happens. That's part of the reason why the accreditation program has its criteria for action on the accreditation from low ratings. You know, the accreditation program doesn't immediately suspend with one low rating because it just may be a random event that you really didn't have control over. Maybe when we were processing our, our material, somehow a rock made it onto your screen or into your sample that wasn't the exact same size, or it may have not fallen through our sieves in processing, but it may fall through your sieves in processing. And, and that's some, some things that you just can't explain with the nature of the material we test. So as long as you're diligent, you know, with your corrective action and, and put your time into just checking it out, that's pretty much all you can really do for those cases. And, and as kind of mentioning, the accreditation program doesn't take action on a single uh, occurrence. You know, you basically have to have four sample failures to have action being taken on that. So, so there's a buffer and there's a, a recognition, that, uh, recognition that that's possible. So like I said, I think the biggest thing is to just try to be diligent in your corrective action and move forward with it. Yep. Thanks for that, John. And that, that's the way I try and approach it with our laboratories. It's, you know, it's not outside the realm of possibility for you to not be able to figure out why you got the low rating, but you still, you must go through that corrective action process and you need to dig as deep as you can possibly dig to try and find that answer. But if you've exhausted all of that and you still can't find a reason, then that's okay as long as it's this time and not every time. <laughs> so. yeah, exactly. And that's and that's the the important part about it. It's, it's one thing to dig and not find it. If you dig and not find it four times, then you're probably not digging deep enough. <laughs> so that's, that's that's kind of the catch. It's like, okay, yeah, it could happen, but but really if it happens four times in a row, then you you probably haven't done your your diligence like we were talking about. So uh, that leads into another question, and this might actually be for Brian. I think we've we have answered this question, but just to kind of frame it directly, you know, what happens if I get a low rating? Um, if there's anything else that you want to say about, you know, what a lab is supposed to do uh, when you get a low rating. Thanks. I I will, I will jump in because as as John was talking, I, I was just imagining all these people thinking saying. Well, every 20 times I can just say it was like an act of God and I don't have to worry about it. That's not necessarily what that means statistically. You know, just like if there's a one in a million chance of you winning the lottery, it doesn't mean you can buy a million tickets and you're guaranteed to win. So you're uh, telling me there's a chance. <laughs> there's a chance, not a good chance. But what but I would say about that is people really need to look at the entire process because I think sometimes when the people say, uh, that they've looked into the testing, they've looked into the apparatus, they've looked into all these things. There's some things that happen in between when that box is received and when those results are entered that are not in the test method and they're not covered by the equipment. There's sample handling, there's, you know, somebody cut the box open with a box cutter and all, a bunch of sample fell out, but neglected to tell people that by the time it made it from the box area to the testing area perhaps some other sampling techniques or splitting techniques were completed that were not necessarily part of the ASHTO or ASTM standard. There may be a specific state method. Uh, if those were carried out on the sample and only part of the sample was actually tested, 
that could be an issue. And I think so. when somebody's really looking into it and scratching their head about what may have gone on, they do need to dig uh, as deeply as they can. Probably the the riskiest situation is just asking the technician what happened and stopping there. That's that's usually a bad way to go because you're going to get the answer. Well, I did everything the way I normally do. That may or may not be true, but if you watch, go back there in the lab, say, okay, just show me what you did and start from the time you got the box and at the time when those results were entered into the system. Reporting can e- even be an issue, believe it or not, even with the measures that, that John puts in place for people to enter the results and and kind of catch those goofy things that are maybe units that are wrong or something like that. It still happens every once in a while where somebody uh, mistypes or does something a little unusual. So uh, you really kind of have to open your open your scope uh, of your analysis when you're dealing with those low ratings. So th- I, I think I answered that. I guess the point that I wanted to make is one low rating is not going to get your accreditation revoked. There has to be a repeated pattern of of non-performance and and lack of investigation before something serious like a an accreditation revoke revocation is going to happen. So that's right. Yeah. So four four low ratings to suspension and two additional ones to revocation. Right. Right. So one thing that the laboratories have to keep in mind is that corrective action process shouldn't start when you get suspended. It should start when you get that first low rating because let's say you get one round where you've only gotten uh, one out of the two low ratings. You still need to figure out what went went wrong. You may be having testing issues uh, that this has pointed out that could carry for a year in your laboratory before you get that next round of testing from the uh, actual resource proficiency sample. So it's important to look into that. Now, as far as accreditation is concerned, it does take, you know, two consecutive low ratings on both sample pairs. Again, if you don't if you don't investigate that first time and you don't improve, that leaves you open to risk of failing the second time and then getting that suspension. I did have a question in this vein of what happens when a laboratory's corrective action is we've got a bad sample. How does the accreditation program handle that? What are the proficiency sample program's thoughts on, we got a bad sample, corrective action done? From the accreditation perspective, if you failed four samples and that's your response, we would reject that. So it, it, while it's plausible, it's highly unlikely. So we'd say you're going to need to do a little bit more digging before we can seriously consider that response. Yeah, and to kind of chime in from the, the uh, sample standpoint, Brian is exactly right. Is it is it plausible? Absolutely. It can happen. Uh, you know, there are, are instances where with our process, anything can happen. You know, basically, we, we try to be incredibly diligent with our packaging process and ensure that we're sending out the most uniform, uh, reasonable samples that we can send to participants. But as Brian mentioned, that chance of a bad sample happening four times in a row, and that's what your corrective action is, more than likely you'll need to investigate that a little bit a little bit more. That being said, though, if we do receive a, a, a complaint from a customer about a bad sample, we will do our best to investigate it. And if you say that and you don't, you know, the, the first thing we will probably ask you is, well, we want to see your data. Uh, we want to see pictures. So show us what the box looked like after you opened it up. Show us pictures of the material. Send us your data sheet so we could investigate it. 
you know, and then we'll have a, a discussion with you and with your technicians to try to see what was the cause. Um, and it, it, it does happen. I, I will freely admit that we have sent samples that have not been of the quality that we prefer. Now, they are very far and few in between, but it, it can happen. Um, and we'll do our best to work with you to make sure that we can come to some sort of a, a resolution that gets the laboratory what, what they need as it comes to their performance. Can I, can I add one more thing about this situation since we're kind of going down this rabbit hole? Uh, I want to talk about worst case scenarios. Let's say that you really can't figure out what's going on. You've tested a couple blind samples and you're just not getting any better. There's always a possibility for you to get a surveillance assessment. And, and right now we're really proficient at completing these remotely. It wouldn't even be that cost prohibitive. It's not like we have to fly somebody out there to watch it. But if it's helpful, because we, we really want our participants to be able to get on the right track. Uh, so if you're really at your wit's end, you can't figure out what's going on. Uh, you could always request an assessment just for that particular test. And we could send you a proficiency sample. Now, this is not for free, but it, it could be really valuable to you to go through this process. Uh, so I, I just want to throw that out there as one last uh if you're really at your wit's end kind of situation, there is a, there is a help available. So I guess one other thing that I did want to get in here, why can't I just run the test like I always do? And that's kind of a facetious way of me asking this question. You know, the point of the proficiency sample test is to, you know, make sure that you, well, not the point, but one of the points is to, you know, are you following the test method? Um, those kinds of things. But every now and again, you send out different uh, directions. And so this is kind of a, a, a multi, multifaceted question is, uh, you know, the hidden value or the hidden meaning here is read the directions. Um, but I, I wonder if maybe you could just chat about that real quick about, you know, why would you deviate from the test method uh, for whatever reason? I mean, really, the program is designed to basically stay confined within those ASHTO, ASTM, or specific state methods that we have uh, through the program. So you really don't want to try to to do any kind of deviation or, for example, uh, perform a different test method to try to get the same test report metric. The intention is for that measure of consistency between the participants using the same standardized methods. That is one thing that, that as you mentioned, Oak, the, the instructions, they do uh, change every now and again. We try to keep them consistent, but as you're well aware with, with uh, the Committee on Materials and Payments, I mean, you know, there are standards revisions and things change as we learn more about materials and processes and tests. We need to really stay up on the changes. So there could be a time where 2020 sample is has this set of instructions and then the 21 sample has a completely different set of instructions because a test changed and there's a new reporting parameter or the requirement for significant digits changed. So anything like that, like you said, you just gotta be really, really diligent when you read your instructions and make sure that you're doing what you're, you're supposed to per the ASHTO ASTM or the, the state methods that are within the program. Yeah, and I, I think that there, you know, we, we fall into, I, I said it at the top of this discussion, you know, you can get complacent and, uh, I just wanted to kind of throw that out there, you know, make, you know, these samples come with directions and, you know, you got to make sure that you read those directions because it might be something very minor like that that's changed. And if you just assume that everything's the same all the time, you're going to get burned. 
and you go back and you read the, the directions and it said, oh, well, yeah, I, I didn't do that because I didn't read the directions. So, all right, I'll get off that soapbox. Um, we're talking about statistics and, you know, we already had the discussion about the Z scores and uh, the performance charts and everything. So if, if you have any words of wisdom about, you know, the difference between the test precision and bias and what the repeatability is or the, or the ratings, maybe you could talk about that. Cause I, I know this is kind of <laughs> a loaded question, but yeah. Yeah. And no, I mean, uh, Oak is probably one of the most common questions that we, we get with the program, you know, you know, your standard deviations are so close, you know, but I'm well within those estimates. This is, this is a joke. You should be using the precision estimates as your metrics the thing is you have to kind of look at the way the program's designed. So the sample program is meant for a single moment in time, a measurement of your accuracy with that specific sample, right? So that's it. It's, it's just boom in that instance, how we are performing the test as it pertains with that current standard, all, all the, all the stuff that we, we try to provide. When you look at those precision estimates, and this is the the double-edged sword. If you read like the caveat underneath the precision estimates, a lot of times it says from Ashto resource proficiency samples. Well, then that really makes you want to just you know get crazy and go berserk on the corrective action of the program. But when you're looking at those precision estimates, they were developed for an array of materials. So not just the crushed limestone that Ashto resource sent out this year. They're meant for all different kinds of material types. You know different porosities, different gravities. So those numbers are typically larger than the proficiency sample material because of that. You're accounting for material variability, and that's kind of where you stop comparing. You're not comparing apples to apples at that point. You're comparing apples to oranges. That's really the where the argument essentially kind of ends with us is that they're two different things. Now, do we use the proficiency sample data to develop the precision estimates? Yes, because you know, after five, six, seven years, we've got six or seven different materials where we can actually help Ashto or ASTM or whatever agency decide to create and revise a precision estimate. But when you're specifically talking about the program, the precision estimate discussion ends because it's not about different types of material. We're talking about one type of material in a single instance. You know, it just speaks to, you know, you just need to understand the difference between precision and accuracy. You know, if you've got two results that are 10 and 11, oh, yeah, you're precise. But if the correct answer is three, well, <laughs> that's that's not very good. You repeated yourself, but you repeated yourself incorrectly. I guess one other question that I had here, I think we covered this, but is there a right answer? John kind of addressed that at the beginning, and maybe we can officially address that because say you have 1700 labs and they all submit a, a result and you know the statistics is based on what that average result is but do you as program manager you don't establish well you know this on the course aggregate sample the half inch sieve is 19 percent passing and that's it you, do you do that so we do not, and that's that's kind of the the crux of the program is that all of the laboratories that participate, you know, we are under the assumption that they are all experts in what they're doing, and they're competent, and they know exactly how to run the test, and you know that value or that average should really be, really be it. There's really no reason why, uh, you know, it, it, 
it's it is it possible? Yes. I mean, you know, we could go and we could pick what we would consider a quote unquote expert laboratory, and you know, we could develop some sort of criteria and go and say, well, if you meet all these, you know, performance metrics and you've got this XYZ accreditation from somebody, we're going to use your data as the right answer. But we don't do that. Like I said, we're making the assumption that everyone who gets one of those boxes of material is going to perform the test as best as they can possibly perform it. So all of that data and that grand average value should be the quote unquote best answer from everybody. You know, and, and that's kind of the the pretense of it. We we put it into your hands to tell us what the true value really is. When we publish those numbers, those are it. I, I I'm I'm fully confident that that number is the true value. And any kind of issue that we would see with some sort of bias or if there was something going on, we would suppress the ratings or basically, you know, get rid of that parameter. So no no laboratory would be affected by it. But the way that our analysis works, it's it's very robust, and we're very confident that that number that's published is the true number. I'm yeah. glad you asked that question too, because like like John was saying, most of the laboratories that participate are experts, and it's really when you look at that Uden plot, you can really see where that data is packed into the center, and very few data points are kind of on those outside edges, and we really don't end up suspending that many laboratories. Uh, if you look at the total amount of participants in the program, so we do have a lot of confidence in that, not just the value of the way the analysis is carried out, but also in the way the program handles it. That was one of the questions that I had when I first started. It's like, well, am I shooting for a value? Well, you know, what does all this stuff mean? But, you know, that's, I'm trying to put myself in the position of a new person, which is, geez, it's going on 20 years now. So, <laughs> but uh we covered the main points that there were a couple other questions in here that I that I wrote down, but I think we covered the answers to those and and the other questions and as we discussed things. So I really don't have anything else to ask. Uh, uh, so I'll just say thank you again for giving me this opportunity to put you under the hot light and interrogate you here for a little bit. But uh, uh, I hope that uh, this information is useful for everybody. Thank you so much for volunteering to be on this episode, Oak. It's been great having you ask the questions. And John, thanks for being so forthright with all the answers and thorough that we, we've got a lot of content. I don't know if we're going to have to split this up into two episodes or just let it roll as one, but it's all really good content. So thank you for your time today, Oak. Oh, you're very welcome. And uh, thanks for uh, thanks for letting me come and, uh, and join you guys and ask these questions. Uh, it was very enjoyable. Good. And I hope to have you on another episode to kind of talk to you about some of the things that Montana DOT is doing uh, outside of just handling our accreditation issues or proficiency sample issues. You bet. Anytime. John, thank you, as always, for volunteering to be on these episodes. There, th This is not the last episode we'll have about proficiency samples because there are always so many questions that we get about the program. And I think the more um, the more chances for you to be participating in these conversations, the better off everybody will be. So thanks again, John. Hey, no problem, Brian. Anytime. Thanks for listening to Ashto Resource Q&A. If you'd like to be a guest or just submit a question, send us an email at podcast at ashtoresource.org or call Brian at 240-436-4820. For other news and related content, check out Ashto Resource's Twitter feed or go to ashtoresource.org. 